1: Donate at camh.ca/CanadaLand to help Camh treat addiction and build hope. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than two hundred thousand Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. Comes with a twenty-year warranty and a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors. Free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit Douglas.ca slash Canadaland to claim this offer. That is Douglas.ca slash Canada Land.
2: <laughs>
1: Last week we brought you part one of Thunder Bay Postmortem. If you have not heard that, go back and listen to it before listening to part two, which is gonna follow in a moment. And a quick warning, this episode deals with graphic discussions of violence against indigenous people and indigenous youth. Wait for it. This episode is brought to you by Evan Doyle, Donald McAvoy, Jess Brown, Erin Townsend, Faye Kiewitz, Caroline Toth, Maria Elisa Maltese, and Dia.
0: My name's Dia, and I'm a student from Toronto who just moved to Vancouver. I support Candleland because I got hooked on Commons and continued because of the coverage on important topics like Fairy Creek and the disease in New Brunswick that I can't get anywhere else. I tell literally everyone about Candleland, and I've recruited many supporters, including my lovely mom. Hey, mom. Love you. There aren't a lot of people like Kona Williams.
3: Well, thanks for having me. Can I just pause for one second? Because I got the dogs and they're freaking out about... I think there might be a bear. Just give me a second.
0: It's not just about where she lives. In Sudbury, Ontario.
3: Oh, my goodness. Yeah, it wasn't the bear. There was actually a bear that had eaten some of my ducks. And it had come back. And before hubby could go get the rifle, I was like so enraged that I jumped off the front porch and chased that bear all the way back to the bush. He was not impressed with
0: me at all. It's not even that she sometimes decides to chase down bears. It's that when she started working in 2016, she was the only Indigenous forensic pathologist in Canada. So my name is Kona Williams.
3: My dad is Cree from Pegwus First Nation, and my mom's Mohawk from Ganawage. And I'm currently working out of Sudbury, Ontario, and I am a forensic pathologist.
0: Forensic pathologists are probably exactly what you imagine when you think of CSI. They're the people working in the labs, performing autopsies. Their findings determine the cause of a death, the reason why someone died, like a heart attack, for example. And then coroners use that to determine the circumstances surrounding a death, like if it was accidental or a homicide. But sometimes... A forensic pathologist will uncover something that the coroners and the police didn't catch. And that can lead to a full-scale investigation.
3: And then there's the training that comes in, like, yes, you've trained for years for this. This is what it is, um, and you're going to make the right call. And I've had to do that a few times. It is always difficult to make those calls because I know full well that because of what I say, the police are going to be looking for somebody somebody's going to be going to jail just on what I say. And that's a huge responsibility. Like, it's going to be on the 6 o'clock news. There's going to be, like, a $100,000 police investigation. And so there, there's that responsibility of making that diagnosis that always is uh, — it's part of the job.
0: And the job is to find answers that can lead to justice for the deceased. Because, as Williams says, if the police and the coroners don't catch something, the forensic pathologists can.
3: It is the reason why the training is so long. So we're prepared to be able to handle um, the worst possible scenarios or be able to catch the
0: homicide that everybody else missed. The system places a lot of trust in the findings of a forensic pathologist. Even more so when you're the first indigenous forensic pathologist.
3: Having expectations you know on behalf of the service and the path of my colleagues who are thinking oh good we have somebody who's on the inside somebody who can fix the issues with indigenous people and death investigation and then on the flip side of that there's the expectations and the responsibilities from the communities who are thinking okay you know there are problems with death investigation and here's somebody who's you know First Nations she's one of us Maybe she can fix all the problems. And coming right out of fellowship, that was that was pretty. Um, it was stressful.
0: Williams has been called into Thunder Bay many times to work on cases or testify to court. And she said working in Thunder Bay was different from working anywhere else because cases were more complex than anything she'd ever encountered.
3: You know, if you take Toronto and if you take Um, sort of the average criminally suspicious or or homicide death, Uh, a lot of times you're looking at gunshot wounds, stab wounds. And although, you know, yes, they make the news, most of the time they're fairly straightforward. Like, we know why they died. But in Thunder Bay, often you have a, a mixture. So there might be injury. There might be natural disease. There might be, you know, toxicology, so drugs and alcohol mixed in. I found a number of those cases involved all three of them and. Those tend to be some of the most challenging cases that we do.
0: Not only are these cases more challenging, Thunder Bay has often been the city with the highest homicide rate per capita in Canada. But while there may be more homicides in Thunder Bay, there are less services to investigate them in the north. Williams expresses concern about the time it takes to ship bodies to Toronto because of the risk of evidence denaturing.
3: The longer the delay the more risk you have of not being able to get that important information that may be critical to the case. You know, as we know, and it's a reality of death. Bodies decompose, they degrade. Evidence can be lost if the longer a body is just sort of left there. It is preferable to have those services available locally. Absolutely. It really should happen. That kind of service should be available, not just to Thunder Bay, but to the area northwestern Ontario and the communities um, and nations around the area. I think they absolutely deserve to have something like that.
0: Williams was again called to Thunder Bay to help with reinvestigating nine Indigenous sudden death cases that were found to have been improperly done the first time. In 2019, the leaders of that team announced their intentions. Retired Ontario Provincial Police Detective Ken Leppert told the audience that, quote, our commitment is to find the truth and follow the evidence, end quote. Leppert said advances in technology would make it possible to collect better forensic evidence, particularly in searching underwater, finding the truth, following the evidence. Williams says it was sacred work to go back and help families find closure, But she was also afraid that it wasn't going to be possible to find answers in all cases.
3: Now, say in terms of like DNA evidence, for example, were not possible 10 years ago, even five years ago. So the technology is is getting better. The longer time has passed, the more chances you're going to get that, you know, maybe the evidence is no longer viable or maybe it's been lost or maybe it's been destroyed or, you know, maybe it wasn't collected properly. Um, because we didn't know about that back then. So looking back, there are things that, that you know, the standards of, of death investigation or the standards of what should have been done 10, 15 years ago are different than they are right now. And some of that evidence might be lost. But then when you're dealing with something that's, that's you know, 10, 20, 30 years ago when things weren't done like that, you know, the, the evidence or the, the information that I would like just might simply not exist.
0: William says due to the length of time and the initial problems in the investigations, answers might never be found. She said families wanted accountability and justice. But what the families thought was going to happen and what was actually possible were at odds.
3: And then I also felt like, you know, it doesn't matter how much work I do. It doesn't matter how in-depth I go into this. You know, people that might have had answers may have died. Like, there's lots of things that retrospectively we can't get back. You know, I can hear the emotion and I can hear the pain and I can hear the grief in the families where they want to know what happened and who did something to their family member where what the investigation was was to open things up and try and figure out what went wrong or, or are there ways that we can do things better. I don't know if that wasn't communicated properly or if it wasn't communicated the right way, but I just, I halfway through, going through, I just, I literally felt like, those two were never going to meet. And I felt bad for the families.
0: After the investigation process came to a close, Williams says she was not kept in the loop about the status of the reinvestigations. And she believed it had simply fizzled. I
3: didn't really hear anything about, you know, just kind of fizzled out. And I was actually going through, back through my emails trying to find, like, where is the final report? Like, where is that that report that was... You know, submitted to the public, maybe, or was it made public? I wasn't even sure. and i I couldn't find it.
4: In some cases, especially in those cases where a person was found um, in a river, like without a complete examination they determined that, that the person died by drowning. So, of course, anyone, even a deceased person, are, if they're held by force in the water, of course they're going to have water in their lungs. And in some cases, there was other marks that demonstrated that there was violence inflicted on this person.
2: Anna Betty Achnipaniskam, is the Deputy Grand Chief of Nishinabiaski Nation, also known as NAN. It isn't a government so much as an advocate for the chiefs of the 49 mostly fly-in First Nations in Ontario's far north. Achney Paniskam also represents three of the nine cases that were so poorly investigated that they were ordered to be reinvestigated.
4: So that system failed. In Jethro's case, the report said the auntie um, that went to see him said he had cigarette burns on his face and that there was markings on his body that showed um, bruising. And yet they said he committed suicide by drowning himself. So everyone failed him, the coroner, the hospital, and the police.
2: She's talking about Jethro Anderson, who died under mysterious circumstances in Thunder Bay in 2000. The family of Jethro Anderson was one of several that were invited to lookout to finally review the results of this reinvestigation. Sulekout calls itself the Hub of the North, a small town four hours from Thunder Bay that serves as a meeting ground for fly-in First Nations in the North. Caitlin Casper went up there. She is a lawyer with Aboriginal Legal Services. She's representing three of the families who lost loved ones whose deaths are being reinvestigated. Casper tells us the meeting between the families and the investigators didn't get off to a good start.
5: It was awful. It was an awful scenario. And we asked for two day meetings because the first day was going to be set aside for explaining the findings. And then it really put legal counsel in a precarious position of knowing that we are walking into this entire situation uh, blind and that we do not have a good way to be able to prepare to use time wisely.
2: Casper's team had just five days to get flights for the families and community supports to Sioux Lookout. Travel in the north is difficult and expensive at the best of times. But families couldn't afford to miss the meeting. Because the lawyers, government officials, the chief coroner, members of the reinvestigations team, were all assembled to give the final report. The stage was set. The families awaited answers.
5: While well, the initial plan was to provide something in writing to families, the office of the chief coroner said that they didn't have any documents. Uh, said that the nine individual investigations were complete, including the three of our clients, but that the reports were not ready for release.
2: It became apparent to the families, their supports, and to Casper, that these final meetings were not going to provide them with what they needed in terms of closure and moving on with their lives. There was little time to reflect and digest and respond during. In the presentation of the final reports into the deaths of their loved ones...
5: And then on the second day, one of our families even experienced the situation of being halfway through the question period and the lead investigator refused to change their flight and basically just left the family in the middle of the meeting. To see somebody who was in charge of reinvestigating their child's death, get up and just leave, even though the family basically begged him to stay, was so incredibly difficult.
2: To add insult to injury, the family liaison officer through this process, Detective Chris Carson, never should have been there in the first place.
5: Detective Carson was the subject matter of an inquest while he was employed at Anishinaabe Aski Police Service and that this inquest was with respect to the death of Romeo Wesley, who was a young man from Cat Lake First Nation The circumstances of this death essentially involved Detective Carson, as well as another police officer. And the manner of death was very similar to George Floyd.
2: Wesley allegedly lunged at a visiting doctor. In the ensuing confrontation, Carson and another officer handcuffed him and held him down with boots on his back until he died. An autopsy found that chest compressions were part of what killed Wesley. Now, 10 years later, Detective Carson was assigned to be the family liaison on the reinvestigations team. He worked closely and personally with families and was supposed to make life easier for them in dealing with the police bureaucracy. Once Detective Carson was recognized, Casper immediately alerted Dr. Dirk Hoyer, chief coroner of Carson's background in the community. She claims that Hoyer told them Carson wouldn't be a part of the investigations anymore.
5: Families were understandably upset that this individual had been allowed to act as family liaison officer and we were certainly assured that his role with the reinvestigations was done.
2: And just like that, it was over. It ended just like it started. A lack of care, a lack of communication, and a lack of transparency. It was the end of the process. The big reveal. Instead, the families, their lawyers, and their supports had to fly out of town on five days' notice. The investigations team didn't give the families anything written down with the results of the investigations. The officer assigned to work closest with the families had been involved in the death of a community member. And even though the families scrambled to fly to Sioux Lookout, the reinvestigation team wouldn't stay until the end of the meeting they called. It all adds up, Casper says to disrespect. After Sue Lookout, the reinvestigation stopped dead, and the final report has never been made public. Unfortunately, this was not the only time serious problems have been found in the death investigation systems in Ontario. Charisse and I have been digging into that. Hey, Charisse. Hey, Ryan. The deeper we dig into this story, the more we find post-mortem services in Ontario have been under scrutiny for a long time and in very serious ways.
0: Yeah, it's kind of wild how often this has happened.
2: Ontario has known postmortem services are struggling since the 2008 gouge inquiry, which found a number of alarming ethical breaches and a lack of oversight in the system itself. And I just want to share this quote from the inquiry itself. Quote, appalling ethical breaches by doctors, a lack of knowledge of the legal system, an improper system of checks and balances, leading to a total lack of oversight into the work of those who make the determinations that often lead to serious criminal convictions, as well as other systemic problems inside Ontario's forensic pathology system. Wow. Yeah, I know. This is Ontario's current chief forensic pathologist, Dr. Michael Palanin. He's talking to TVO's Steve Pakin back in 2013.
6: Mr. Justice, Stephen Gouge released a report showing A shocking number of adults were wrongly convicted of crimes as a result of the testimony of former pathologist Charles Smith. The gouge inquiry pointed to appalling ethical breaches by Smith as well as systemic problems inside Ontario's forensic pathology system. So the gouge
2: inquiry actually produced a series of recommendations that formed a blueprint of uh, the way forward, the path forward. And then me, my team, and the broader criminal justice system could respond to those recommendations and really recreate, strengthen, professionalize, modernize the Forensic Pathology Service. The system was completely overhauled.
0: A few years after that, in 2013, a $1 billion forensics facility was opened in Toronto.
2: Did you say billion with a B?
0: Yes, billion with a B. It was described as the most advanced facility of its kind on Earth. And it was supposed to be part of the solution that the province believed would help improve the whole system. This is again, pulling in with Steve Paikin on TVO.
2: Well, what goes on there is the application of cutting edge technology uh, to the investigation of deaths of public interest. This spans the entire process of death investigation right from the examination of bodies in the autopsy room, postmortem imaging with CAT scanners and, and other imaging devices that you would find in modern hospitals, straight through to sequencing candidate genes that might be relevant in sudden
0: death. So, essentially, very, very expensive. But five years after that facility was opened, Ontario's Auditor General issued a scathing report about the Office of the Chief Coroner and the Forensic Pathology Service. The accusations from this report are wild. Pathologists double billing. Weaknesses in the way bodies were being stored. Deaths not properly being reported to the office. In fact, they found that in 2018, there were 2,000 deaths that were underreported and therefore not investigated.
2: So even after they open up a billion-dollar facility, there's still holes in the service.
0: Yeah, it looks like that. But we don't actually know. The offices agreed to a set of recommendations to improve the service. And that was in 2021, and there hasn't really been much public data released since. Meanwhile, there are still coroners and pathologists raising the alarm about concerns they have about the system, closures, rising costs of flying bodies to Toronto, and problems of understaffing.
2: These problems bring into question the death investigation system's ability to find the actual cause of death of a deceased person. Because, like Kona says, sometimes a forensic examiner is the only person standing in the way of a homicide charge or not. And it's dependent on fresh evidence.
0: As a coroner told us in the last episode, coroners are struggling to do their jobs too. And their job is dependent on the pathologists and the cops doing their job. It kind of makes me worried that if one part of the system isn't working or is under-resourced, is it capable of accurately finding the cause of death for a person?
2: The final report, these investigations, could be the last chance the system has to prove itself.
1: Help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. Mm.
2: Many families, and even members of the investigative team, also did not receive the report in full. Neither did the public. A process which was supposed to rebuild trust in the police, the coroners, and the pathologists, simply went dark. But it was leaked to members of the press, including John Thompson and I. Back in February 2022, Ontario's Chief Coroner Dirk Hoyer had actually recognized himself as part of a conflict of interest in the re
1: Ontario's chief coroner has called for an expert review of the nine
2: reinvestigations of sudden deaths involving Indigenous people here in Thunder Bay. We recognize that we weren't the right people to be overseeing this because of the potential that we could impact recommendations that could come to ourselves. And that's not right. It was handed over to a team of Indigenous women. And while making this show, We received that report. It hasn't even been released yet. They're calling it Rebroken Trust. The final reinvestigations report. And together, they tell us everything we wanted to know about the reinvestigations. Hi, Ryan. I want to say that we have a lot of respect for the women who are writing this and for the families. What they discovered
6: is worse than what any previous report had found. We're talking premature assumptions of no foul play, no or limited searches, insufficient collection of evidence and photos, improperly interviewing witnesses or failing to interview witnesses at all, failing to obtain reports, surveillance, and even 911 call audio. The final point, a failure to complete and accurately categorize the manner of death.
2: As for the cause of death... The reinvestigations reached the same conclusions as before in eight of the nine cases.
6: The exception is the 2016 death of a woman who was originally declared dead by hypothermia. It's now undetermined and includes blunt force trauma that wasn't considered at the time.
2: Then Thunder Bay Police Services Board Chair Kristen Oliver apologized to the families for the reinvestigations process.
5: When we look at the
3: reinvestigations and the outcomes of these investigations, I think that these families continue to feel grief and sorrow because the closure just isn't there. And for that, I sincerely apologize.
2: So, John, we knew some details about how each of these original nine investigations were sloppy, but this document expands on those failures, exposing themes that run across all nine cases If the outcome is unchanged and the conclusions were drawn from questionable evidence, how effective is the reinvestigation? I reached out to Casper for comment on the report.
5: There was this overwhelming uh, use of a lie detector test to essentially rule out uh, somebody who may have been a prime suspect or a key witness. Lie detector tests, in no sense of the word, are admissible in court for good reason. They're not reliable. And they certainly should not be the basis on which you end investigation of a reinvestigation.
2: In a lot of cases, police went back to the scene and took photos, sometimes 10, 20 years later. We know nothing new came from that.
5: You know, it doesn't matter if you revisit the scene, I think is the most important part. It doesn't matter how many measurements you take of the scene again.
6: In many cases, evidence was taken out of where it had been stored for years, sometimes improperly. In one case, the deceased clothing was kept in a garbage bag in a banker's box. What stuck out to me was that
2: investigators had to rely on the little evidence collected at the original scene. So in cases where the original officers didn't collect the 911 tape or CCTV cameras, that information was just lost. Casper also mentioned handling of evidence as a concern when I talked to her. She said police asked for evidence back after years of it not being in their custody.
5: For one of our families, evidence had already been returned to them, given back by the police. And the family was contacted a month or two after the reinvestigations commenced and asked if they had a cell phone that was years and years old. Thankfully, the family had kept the cell phone, but the reality is that they had to request that evidence again because it had already been given back to the family.
6: By giving the phone back to the family in the first place, police broke the chain of custody, the principle that evidence has to remain under police control to be submittable in court. All of this added together didn't bring any closure to the families or their political leaders. There are quotes from family members on every section of this. They're varied, but not one of them reflects on the reinvestigations as having been a positive experience. Officers who were involved in the reinvestigations told this group that the reinvestigations were rife with coldness and compassion fatigue. They expressed this sort of moral injury. The meetings were informal with no legal cautions, with quote no angles of hard questioning or interrogation even when they gave inconsistent testimony. And Ryan, can you read this quote here? Quote, my most troubling observation was the
2: fact that not one person was actually assigned a case. It seemed to go through many hands, and officers merely put their own involvement in cases under a supplementary report, thus creating the idea that many would not be accountable should something go awry. If this was a case of one of my loved ones, I would expect to deal with one officer and not a wide range of officers that have some knowledge here and there on what's happening with an investigation.
6: This is a reflection from Jesse LaPere, who is the forensics officers on the re-investigations. There's people in our community that are hurting and there's people in our community that lose a lot of people close to them and there's a lot of people working involved in those things so why is there such a disconnect why is there so many unanswered questions why is there so much hurt out there when you have so many people doing such serious work out there where does that all go you know you're making it for nothing if if the people that are closest to these people that are passing aren't finding the closure
0: The Rebroken Trust report concludes that the police failed again. But what about the coroner's?
2: On the coroner's side... Trust points out the reinvestigations continued to focus on a victim's history with alcohol Even though that person had physical and sexual abuse in their history as well as other health issues like anxiety and depression This is the same type of drunken Indian Stereotype that was identified at the root of the systemic racism for poor death investigations of indigenous people in Thunder Bay
6: in the first place and seven years After an inquest recommended that the coroner's office develop a formal protocol that would prioritize communication with the families, that still hasn't happened. Coroners should attend death scenes wherever possible. That still hasn't been implemented. Casper
2: says poor communication is at the root of it all, because of how the information flow within Indigenous communities has adapted to centuries of interacting with colonial institutions
5: in indigenous communities there is always a hesitancy to talk to the police there is a lot of reasons historically for this but it goes without saying that there are oftentimes individuals who will speak to the family directly about what they've heard about what they experienced about who they were with what was said that will not be forthcoming to the police. They will not go to the police station and say, I have information, I want to give a statement. It's information that comes to the family. And so that role of connecting with the family to see what they know, to interview them, to be able to explore anything that the family has heard, that is why the investigation should have always started with the family and started with the community.
6: Again, Anna Betty speaks for the chiefs of Nishinaabe Aski Nation.
4: They didn't do a proper investigation. And then through the reinvestigations, there wasn't any chance at all in terms of finding someone responsible. There was no indication that would happen. The reinvestigation just proved what we already knew, that they didn't do the job They did not um, do a proper investigation. They did not investigate your child's death properly. That's what it says. Now what? Nothing. There's nothing that can be done. No one's going to be held accountable.
2: So I just want to break this down for you. Number one, there was a review of the police and death investigations. Number two, then a reinvestigation of deaths that has already been investigated. Number three, a review of more deaths and even more cases to be investigated. Number four, finally, a review of the investigations to tell you how the process has gone wrong yet again, over and over again and over again. Families have been doing this for years. No one in the system was ever going to be held responsible. The disconnect between what the reinvestigations were supposed to do and what families wanted them to do or believed they were going to do were different things.
6: And the people who are doing the reinvestigations were taking a second look at cases their own offices had worked on. This report
2: still hasn't come out yet, Nevertheless, the Ontario Provincial Police have already started taking a second look at 14 additional cases.
6: And there's another 25 cases of missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls that have been flagged as needing reinvestigation too. Thunder
2: Bay is going to have to keep going through this, even though all the evidence shows us this system isn't capable of getting justice or peace for the families of those
6: who have passed under mysterious circumstances. At least not yet. And meanwhile, more investigations are coming, more reports, more promises to do better. That's where we're going from here. Anna Bediachnopaniskam says she's in this for as long as it takes.
4: We're not going to quit until all of them are investigated. And also, I think that um, for any unfortunate death that may happen here. I know right now they know they're in the spotlight, right? So they're being very careful and they better be damn careful.
1: That's your Canada land. If you value this podcast, please support us. We rely on listeners like you paying for journalism. As a supporter, you will get premium access to all of our shows ad-free. You'll get early releases and bonus content. You will get our exclusive newsletter. You'll get discounts on our merchandise. You'll get invites and tickets to our live and virtual events. But more than anything, you will be a part of the solution to Canada's journalism crisis. You'll be keeping our work free and accessible to everyone. Come join us now. Click on the link in the show notes or go to canadaland.com slash join. You can email me at jesse at canadaland.com. I read everything you send. We're on Twitter at canadaland, and our website is canadaland.com. This episode was reported by Ryan McMahon, John Thompson, and Sharice Sucherin. Our senior producer is Bruce Thorson. Additional production and editing from Tristan Capicione. Our managing editor is Annette Ejofor. Our editor-in-chief is Karen Puglaze. I'm your host, Jesse Brown. Our theme music is by so-called. Syndication is handled by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. You can visit them online at CFUV.ca. You can listen to Canada Land ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime.